Sacred Pause with Jessica Winderl. Hi, welcome to the One Sacred Pause season finale. I'm Jessica, your host, and this is the last episode of season two. It is so hard to believe and kind of crazy to think that uh, I'm wrapping up my 24th episode of this podcast. And I just want to really thank everybody so much for your support, your love, your encouragement. I have had uh, a lot of really great feedback to this podcast. And as I've mentioned many times before in previous episodes, this really is just a labor of love. I do it because these are the types of conversations that I want to be having and that I really want to put out into the world to encourage other people to consider and talk about and create community around conversations about yoga and meditation and spirituality and entrepreneurship and really following your dream and following your path and connecting more to self and connecting more to source. So I'm just really grateful to be here and really grateful to get to do this. And I couldn't do it if nobody was listening. (laughs) So thank you for listening. Uh, This is a really great episode. I've been saving it. I recorded it actually back in December in Boulder, Colorado with one of my very dearest, very best friends, C. Marie. And um, this is a longer episode. So I understand if you don't stick around for the whole episode, that's okay. No hard feelings. Uh, I'm also actually going to be releasing on YouTube, the um, recorded video version of this podcast episode. So if you are a super fan and really curious about watching C and I talk about this, then um, I'll be posting that link sometime soon for you to check out. In other news, uh, season three is in the works. I already have a lot of really amazing guests lined up and season three is kicking off June 5th with a live podcast event here in Oslo, Norway. So if you're in the area and you're interested, keep your eyes open. Uh, The flyer and registration will be open shortly next week, hopefully. And this event is going to be held at Coco Mat down in Akerbrugge. And I'm going to be interviewing a really interesting guest who is also going to be joining the Atman Yoga School for some of our trainings as a teacher. And she is a uh, neuroscientist. Her specialty is sleep science, but she's also a really dedicated yogi and meditation practitioner. And so she has a lot of very, very interesting research, information, knowledge, and understanding of the brain, brainwave activity, brain chemistry, what happens when we're doing yoga, when we meditate, and why sleep is so important. So I'm going to be interviewing Laura Bojarskati, and it's going to be really fun. So keep your eyes open. Come and join us. Um, Coco Mat, June 5th at 1730. And other than that, uh, enjoy this episode. Marie is also going to be visiting me in August in Oslo, and we are co-teaching a few workshops. So if you like what you hear and want to come learn from us and hang out with us, then registration for those events will also be open shortly. So that's it. That's all. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Adabra. All right. Welcome, everybody, to the One Sacred Pause podcast. My name is Jessica Windrill, and I am your host. And today we're doing something a little bit different. We are actually recording 
a video of today's podcast. And I am here in Boulder, Colorado, and I'm interviewing one of my very dearest friends, Seamarie Billadieu. And today's episode is all about Ayurveda, traditional Chinese medicine, five elements medicine, acupuncture, and uh, teaching yoga, and seva. So I want to welcome you. Thank See? you. Thanks for visiting. Yes, I know. I know. It's so great. And this is, you know, a podcast that I've wanted to record for, well, since I started the podcast, uh -huh. uh, because we've been friends forever. Right. And we, fun fact, grew up in Idaho together and mm -hmm. also dated brothers. Uh-huh. <laughs> and we taught very skiing together. Very important information. Yes, very important information. And we taught skiing together in Aspen. Uh -huh. You still teach in Aspen. Uh -huh. And... Um, you know, I feel like our lives have kind of gone in a similar trajectory. Right. A little right. bit. We're both yoga teachers. We're both a little outside the box. <laughs> we both have a lot of vata. And, um, yeah, it's really fun. So yeah. I value your friendship and I'm happy you're here. Yeah. And so good to be here. Yeah. Yay. So I think where I'd love to start is um, maybe... If you could just tell us a little bit about where you're at in your acupuncture school mm -hmm. journey. And, you know, I remember you talking about going to acupuncture school for a while and you couldn't make up your mind, you couldn't decide. And then you had a really powerful um, experience. Was it, I can't remember if it was with a psychic or who did you see? And they were like, you're going to acupuncture school. Well, it was a dream. It was a dream. Yeah. Oh. So it wasn't on my radar at all. Yeah. To do acupuncture. Yeah. And I had a dream. And in my dream, these people came to me and they said, you have to be an acupuncturist. And they were, you know, holding my shoulders and saying, if you do not do this, it will be a loss to society. You're going to school. Wow. <laughs> so it wasn't even really a choice, I guess, at that time. Wow. And so I started searching. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember that. You called me and you're like, okay, I'm doing it. I've committed. Uh -huh. And I was like, yay, that's awesome. <laughs> and, um, you know, I don't know that much. I've, I've gone to acupuncturist for years. And my experience had always been a little disappointing, mm -hmm. to be honest. Yeah. Um, I never really felt like acupuncture – I never really saw the, the results that I was trying to get mm -hmm. um, until I do go to a wonderful acupuncturist in Oslo where I live in Norway and she's been phenomenal and changed my life, but she's traditional Chinese medicine. Mm -hmm. So I know that's a little different from what you're studying and what you're now doing in clinic. Right. Yeah. So I didn't realize when I went down this acupuncture journey, I didn't realize that there are different types of acupuncture. Yeah. I thought it was under all one umbrella. And, um, what I study is Worsley five element acupuncture. And actually here in Boulder, Louisville is the only place that you can study this type of medicine. Oh, wow. And it's more apprentice style. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons for that is that the director of our school, her father, um, gathered all of this information from acupuncturists kind of around the world and then brought it into this teaching form. And so now his daughter is carrying on that legacy. Oh, wow. And so we get to learn from her. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Wow. So how did you decide, though, to do the five elements 
Yeah, kind of a crazy story. And this is, I think, where fate, destiny comes into play is that um, I thought when I was signing up for acupuncture school, I thought that it was like massage school and I'd go to Bali for like a year. (laughs) (laughs) I was looking in Thailand. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) If only. Yeah. I didn't realize that, you know, it's a, in most countries, it's a doctorate degree to become an acupuncturist and that it's serious medicine. Um, You become a serious student. And so I was looking, once I figured that out, I was looking for a program that I could still work Mm -hmm. and go to school because I'm 36 years old and it's hard to give up your entire life. Right. And going, go back to being a student. Yeah. To be honest. So I didn't realize that five element was a type of acupuncture. I just thought it was the brand of the school. Oh, okay. And I, my mom had just passed away and I was signed up to do the school a few months later. And I thought there's no way that I can start grad school. There's Mm -hmm. no way that I can do this. And I arrived, you know, really pretty much living in my car. I found some scrap paper and made it into the first day of school. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's like, well, You're I just, like, rolling in, like, okay, I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> Is that, isn't that enough? And they started talking about Five Element, and I realized that it was a different type of acupuncture and that – we treat the spirit. Mm. It works with nature. That It's a system of medicine that works with nature because everything that you need to learn, you can learn from nature. Yeah. Which is what Ayurveda says too. Which is what Ayurveda says. I think it's along the line of yoga mm. as far as moving energy. Um, and all of that energy resides in us to start. Yeah. You don't have to gather it from somewhere else. And I had spent my entire career as an adventure tour guide working in these remote locations, immersed in nature. Yeah. So I showed up that first day realizing that there are no coincidences. Yeah. Yeah. You just like stumbled into the perfect program for you. Yeah. And it's the only place in the world that you can study this (laughs) in this, in this format. You know, there's definitely offshoots just like yoga. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's a four-year program, right? Four or five years. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it depends, but yeah, on the person, but for most people, four years. Yeah. Yeah. And you're halfway through. Mm -hmm. So you have this year just started your clinicals. Yeah. And what do you think about that? How's it going? It's pretty cool. It's, it's pretty wild that we go two entire years with never putting a needle Mm -hmm. in anyone. Yeah. Including ourselves. Wow. And then one day you do it. So you're every you're learning, you're studying, it's all in your brain. But I would say, like, until you're in clinic, it's not in your heart yet. Yeah. Because you're just thinking your way. Well, it's theoretical. It. It's theoretical. Until yeah. you actually get to do it. Yeah. In practical. Yeah. So do you do you put needles in yourself? No. No. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just in. Just in patients, just in the clinic. Yeah, yeah. cool. 
And so then what do you think the the goal is? Like, are you going to open your own business or do you go and you work at another acupuncture studio or? I don't know what it's going to look like yet, but what I imagine is coming back to the homeland. Yeah. Yeah. Idaho. <laughs> and I even considered calling it Homeland Acupuncture. Oh. <laughs> Just because I thought, you know, it's cozy. Yeah. And well, coming. We have Homeland Security. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> and I was thinking, like, it could be, like, coming back to yourself, you know, too. Mm-hmm. Um, the Homeland. But, yeah, the whole terrorism thing kind of. <laughs> <laughs> Rose wrenching that idea. So coming back to Idaho, and I thought it would be really nice to um, work for myself. Yeah. It might not look like that to start. I might work in a wellness center mm-hmm. or with a chiropractor or even a doctor's office. You yeah. know, the it's... Um, I think, especially because of the opioid crisis... Yeah. That mm-hmm. acupuncture is going to be recognized by more insurance companies hmm. as another way to work with pain, mm-hmm. to help heal the body. So who knows in two years what the possibilities would be. My dream is to have more of a wellness center. Yeah. I've worked in a lot. Mm-hmm. I've worked in a ton of yoga studios, worked with great healers, great worked with, learned with from great healers, mm-hmm. um, great entrepreneurs like yourself, people who are out doing it. Yeah. And I think I love connecting with people. I think that would be the dream. Yeah. And what about bringing them into this beautiful river valley surrounded by mountains? Of the Teton Valley yeah. in Idaho. Yeah. In in nature, mm-hmm. which is what I think all of these modalities have in common. Yeah. Well, and that's not an accident. Mm-hmm. You know, the natural vibration and rhythm of nature is what we came from. And, well, depending which philosophy you're talking about, but the Prakriti, the nature, the gunas is what we are in yoga philosophy and Samkhya philosophy, what this is, what all of this is. And we have to have the experience of being in the natural form in order for the Purusha, the soul, the Atman to recognize itself. Like they go hand in hand, these two sort of columns of the Purusha and the Prakriti. And um, so if the closest we can get to remembering our own true nature is through a very pure experience and connection to nature. Mm-hmm. That's the closest we can get, at least in, you know, human form. Right. If we're on a spiritual path, according to some of these philosophies, um, then so much of the direction of society currently is like going the wrong way. We're inside all the time. We're staring at computer screens and phone screens. We have no human connection. We don't breathe fresh air. Everything in our life is manufactured and synthetic and chemical. Mm-hmm. All of our household supplies, all the food we eat is crap. And so, you know, I think I think slowly the pendulum is starting to swing the other way where people are like hitting rock bottom. Where they're like, I feel like crap all the time. And it's not like one thing that has to change. It's everything mm-hmm. that has to change. And so, you know, I think your vision is so beautiful to have a center that can support people. Mm-hmm. when they're ready to make changes or they're mm-hmm. ready to hopefully integrate a little bit more into a healthy and sustainable life. 
And what, and also to be able to work with all these great people I've yeah. met along the way. And one thing that I think about what you were just saying about nature and where we kind of are now as far, or most people are with their relationship with nature. Yeah. So I think of um, Rod Stryker's book, The Four Desires. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how, um, you know, in nature, there are no mistakes. Yeah. And a seed from its start knows exactly what its blueprint, yeah, its potential is for life. And it will do that from the very moment it comes to life. And it will do that to the very last seconds of its life, no matter what. Yeah. And as humans, we don't have that. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like what our dharma is. That's what we're working towards through our lifetime is mm-hmm. what is our potential? Yeah. How can we access this? How can we continue to grow? How can we put our sink our roots, mm-hmm. you know, use our tools and in order to spread our branches towards the heavens to our mandate from heaven. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of like the human dilemma. Yeah. And so we're very much in nature, but our work in this lifetime is to, I think, figure out how to come back to that and yeah. realign. And do you think, is that the philosophy of five elements? Um, in a way, it's never been said exactly that way, mm-hmm. but every five elements is everything that you need to learn. You'll learn from nature. Yeah. And um, that nature never gives up on itself. Mm. And as humans, we do. Oh, that's so true. So true. Yeah. And spirit is such an interesting um, topic to consider or think about or contemplate. You know, we have spirits everywhere and in everything. And, you know, it's no surprise. Anybody who knows me knows I'm obsessed with dogs. (laughs) Every dog I have to stop and pet and say hi to and, you know. But the re- one of the reasons I love dogs so much is because their spirit is so pure. Mm. Like you just see that vitality and that life. And even in a sad situation where a dog is perhaps being abused or neglected or, you know, the street dogs of India, they're mm-hmm. happy. But spirit is not necessarily just a positive Spirit has two sides. That's the duality, the Mm -hmm. lightness and the dark. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think we underestimate the power of spirit. And I think in general, in our modern society, we've forgotten how to investigate spirit. And that also, so we're out of nature and we're not even like considering what is my essence? What is my spirit? Mm -hmm. What is it that I'm here to feel? Mm -hmm. Not just to do Mm -hmm. quote unquote like we stuff our emotions we repress our emotions we have unhealthy communication patterns Mm -hmm. and all of these things get layered upon one another so that you know i think about um when you see somebody who is who seems very um what's the word like they have a lot of vitality Mm -hmm. a lot of radiance or in ayurvedic terms the ojas um or the prana or the tejas that that sparkle in their eye, like there's an immediate attraction, like not sexual attraction, but attraction to that very pure spirit. Yeah. That shines through. And I think as humans, 
that is our birthright and that mm-hmm. is our natural state, mm-hmm. but we've forgotten and we've become so distracted. And just like you said, we sometimes give up on ourselves mm-hmm. when we have hard times or when we lose connection to spirit or we lose that vitality. It's very easy to slide backwards. And I think that's probably a lot of what your work is is dealing with is even beyond a specific ailment or disease mm-hmm. is I imagine that many of the people that you treat and you see a common complaint is lack of spirit. Well, um, that's um, so great that you brought that up because five element, that's what we treat. We treat this, the spirit. Yeah. We don't treat symptoms. Mm-hmm. We treat the spirit because the idea is, is that when the true essence of yourself is fortified and strong and you're connected to it, then everything else will fall in alignment mm-hmm. because that's the path of nature. Yeah. It's, I kind of think of the spirit like if you're, you know, this is the naturalist in me is like the keystone species, you know, the species that is, if the ecosystem is unhealthy or out of balance, you'll see it in the keystone species first. Mm. And then everything else is affected from that point. Mm -hmm. And um, when often it's say that a lot of our points that we use help bring people back to balance, which is being connected to spirit. Yeah. Because that is your true essence. Yeah. And from there, you can see your path clearer. You can make better decisions, mm-hmm. make better relationships. Um, maybe this is what's interesting about a strong spirit and the mm-hmm. sy- symptom aspect of what you know people might be coming in to be treated for is that for perhaps they're coming in and they're complaining about their allergies. Mm-hmm. Like that's their number one complaint. But when you treat the spirit and that becomes stronger, then maybe the allergies don't shift or change in any way. But the person's ability to deal with or work with the allergies becomes better. Mm -hmm. It's not as much of an issue. Yeah. And you see that throughout everyday life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because that makes me think right away of Ganesh. (laughs) The... the um, elephant God, the remover of obstacles, who, you know, we talk about yoga mythology and the lessons we can learn from all of the symbolism within yoga mythology. It's not just that when we chant to Ganesh or we invoke Ganesh and his energy and spirit, it's not just that we're saying, okay, remove all the obstacles in my life, like roll out the red carpet and make my life easy and beautiful and shiny. No, it's more that he gives us the fortitude or the strength to navigate the challenges, mm-hmm. to find a way to work with with them, to go through them, rather than just being like, okay, I want to avoid, avoid aversion. I don't want to have to deal with this. It's like, no, can you actually rise to the occasion? Mm-hmm. Perhaps being reminded that you have that strength already within you. Absolutely. And that's kind of what you just were talking about. Yeah, yeah it's just so powerful when we start like breaking down possibilities through these healing modalities. And, you know, my background is more Ayurveda. You have a background in Ayurveda too. And that's one thing that's so fun to talk about is like, okay, well, what are the similarities 
um, both the acupuncture and five elements and, of course, slightly different traditional Chinese medicine. Mm -hmm. And then Ayurveda, they're all ancient. Mm -hmm. They're Eastern. Right. And it's very much about treating the root cause of disease. And in the five elements, it sounds like it's it's a – you know, a lack of connection to spirit, which is what you treat in five elements or some, I'm generalizing, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in Ayurveda, it's like, okay, well, what's the root cause, not the symptom. Mm -hmm. And say five element that, so they would describe it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. I just want to make sure I'm not (laughs) overstepping what I'm saying about it. Um, you know, and that's one of the things like when I share and teach Ayurveda, you know, when we compare it to the allopathic or the Western system and it's like, okay, you don't feel well, you go to your doctor, they, okay, I come in with allergies, I come in with a cough, I come in with back pain. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Here's a pill. Here's a treatment. Like it's the bandaid, it's the quick fix. And there's no further investigation into, okay, well, what's really the quality of your sleep? What kind of dreams are you having? Mm-hmm. Like that's mm-hmm. a big thing. Um, what's What's your relationship with your partner like? What are your underlying emotions that you're repressing? Like, there's so much more digging that goes on in the Eastern modalities that then inform the treatment plan. Mm -hmm. Ayurveda, we call it chikitsa. Um, And, you know, you shared with me that one of the reasons that five elements is set apart from traditional Chinese medicine is the amount of time that you spend with an individual client. Mm -hmm. Because it's like... Two hours. An hour and a half, two hours. Yeah. Because you never leave the room. Yeah. You're with them the whole time. You don't put the needles in and leave. Oh. Mm -mm. Wow. I didn't didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. You stay with them the whole time. (laughs) And on their journey, you stay with them the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. It is really cool. It has changed my life. Yeah. For sure. It's one thing that was so funny, I think you shared this with me. Gosh, maybe it was the summer, maybe it was in the spring. Um, and if it's embarrassing, you don't want to talk about it, we'll just like <laughs> gloss over. But as part of your schooling, uh-huh. and it, I think this is so important, uh-huh. as part of your schooling, you're required to get treatments and you're required to be a student, or I'm mean, not a student, but a uh-huh. um, patient. Well, they, they say, suggest, they strongly suggest getting treatment while you're in school. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it makes sense, yeah. you know. Absolutely. It's like teaching yoga. Like, you can't, unless you've been teaching for a long time and you already know how certain poses or sequences feel in your body, mm-hmm. you know, the rule of thumb for new teachers is you have to practice your sequence, you have to practice it a lot, so that when you teach it and you're walking around the room because you teach off the mat, you know and you can speak to perhaps a general experience that many students are having in mm-hmm. a specific pose. And it's the same thing. If you're you're practicing medicine, like, you better know how it feels mm-hmm. or at least a general idea right. of what the outcome, desired outcome would be. Right. Um, but that's what's really cool, too, about Five Element. And this is the same with yoga. Yeah. Is that um, we don't set any expectations because for people to have their own experience is the most important. Mm-hmm. And no detail is too small you were asking about or you were commenting about the questions that aren't being asked in most western with most western medicine and about the dreams your sleep Mm -hmm. and one of the questions that I asked that 
constantly surprises me on how much information I can gather. Yeah. Is what's your sweat like? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what's your perspiration like? Yeah. And I just thought that I cannot believe the variety of answers that you get. Which from is so that. funny because that's one of the questions that I ask in Ayurveda too. And people are baffled. They're mm-hmm. like, well, I've never really thought about it. I just put my deodorant on. They're like, well, what does it mean when you say a lot, sweet smelling, not a lot, profuse? Uh-huh. They're like, I don't know. I'm like, uh-huh. okay, that's because we're not taught to think about being curious about our bodies. Yeah. Like the functions of our bodies in the Western world are seen as a nuisance. Mm. Oh, you have to go to the bathroom. Oh, as women, we get our periods. What a drag. Oh, we have to do X, Y, and Z. Rather than being like, It's a cycle of nature. It's a cycle of nature. And we're... we're natural rhythm. Temporarily borrowing this vessel in order to hopefully walk along a spiritual path, both Mm -hmm. figuratively and (laughs) literally. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I find that so interesting. Uh And Uh it's it's like a no-brainer. It's like, oh, of course. Or when we talk about the quality of our elimination... Like in polite society, it's like, shh, don't talk about your poop. Don't talk about what comes out of your body. Mm-hmm. And I always joke in when I teach Ayurveda because um, it is so crazy to me that the Western world is obsessed with cooking shows and cookbooks. And it's like, that's what every celebrity wants to do, right? Is write a cookbook. Mm-hmm. And so we talk about food all the time. Ooh, the newest restaurant. Ooh, have you had this via that? And then we're only talking about half of the equation. Okay, well, what happens once, I mean, as soon as you are putting something in your mouth, your body is already starting mm-hmm. the digestion process. Mm-hmm. How's your digestion? Right. So your how evacuation. Right. And the information that we get from the elimination is mm-hmm. so important. And it's like, you know, when I tell people, look at your poop in the toilet. What does it look like? What does it smell like? What's its consistency? Mm-hmm. And people are like taken aback and they're like, oh my God. Ew. I heard this comedian one time say well everybody's a foodie everybody likes yeah. to say that they're a foodie but you know what if you're a foodie you're also a poopy <laughs> <laughs> you can't deny that yeah it's so true <laughs> well it's i mean you do and that's what a lot of people you know they have issues with their digestion their elimination oh, yeah. and they try a million different diets and they take probiotics and they do mm-hmm. x and y and mm-hmm. z and it's like okay well i'm convinced that there is a simpler route And yeah, it requires a little bit more commitment to become educated about food. And Ayurveda, it's a lot of food combinations, like what kinds of foods you're eating together. The discipline. The discipline. Yeah. Yeah, To stay with it when you're in a rush and there's a Mickey D's on every corner and you're just like, okay, screw it. Today I'll just do, tomorrow I'll start Mm -hmm. with a better diet. It's like, okay, well, (laughs) that's, was it Einstein who said that? The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over, Uh expecting a different result. Right. It's like when people are complaining about poor digestion mm-hmm. and discomfort. It's one of the things that's the hardest to change yeah. is diet. People are really attached to it. Yeah. It's one of the things that makes the biggest difference if you do change it. And I, you know, I was diagnosed with lupus when I was younger. Yeah. And I changed my diet. That's how I found Ayurveda mm-hmm. is... I started doing research and I changed my diet and it changed my life. Yeah. And once you know how the other side of that, how health feels, you would never, ever go back yes. to treating yourself poorly. So poorly. Which is what you're doing. Yeah. But because 
your health. If you don't have your health, what do you have? Right. And it's such, once you start feeling good, it's such an easy decision. Yes. Just making that first step. It's the, the diet aspect really fascinates me. Mm-hmm. I agree. And it's, um, I know for me personally, my biggest struggle is sugar. Um, I love sweets. I love sugar. And it's funny though, because if I reach for a, like a snack food, it's actually usually going to be salty. But deep down I have like, and in Norway, it's hard because there's so much chocolate and there's so much candy. And um, I travel a lot, which that's a common complaint too. When you travel and you're off your routine, it's, you know, and I work long hours when I'm in teacher training, it's from eight in the morning until six or seven at night. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard to stay on a, on a good eating schedule. Um, But I'm with you. Like when you feel optimal and you feel like this vessel and this machine is operating at its highest, cleanest frequency, you're like, why would I want to put junk back into this? But, you know, easier said than done. I mean, even though you and I have years of training, both of us under our belt, and like we know how to do certain things, we're still human. And that's the crazy part is that things like slide and some seasons of our life are easier and other seasons of our life are harder. And Um, You know, I think there is a lot of other things that come into play with chronic illness. And um, it's not so easy to just be flip and be like, oh, change your diet. Mm -hmm. Because I understand it's not always that easy. Yeah. But, you know, when I went through cancer treatment, all the books are like, okay, the first thing you need to do is you need to be drinking clean water. I'm like, okay, check. You got to have leafy greens. Okay, check. And then it's, um, I don't think I ever told you this, but... So I went, as part of my treatment, I had access to a bunch of different therapists, counselors, massage therapists. And so I went to see a nutritionist because I was like, oh, I've never actually been to like a Western nutritionist. What are they going to tell me? And Jonas, my husband, came with me and we sat there and the nutritionist basically was like, okay, you need to make sure you're not eating meat more than twice a week. You need to have leafy greens. You need to cut out sugar. Coffee's probably not great during treatment. And I was like... I left and I like literally threw out, out of it the right. pamphlet she gave me. I'm like, yep, right. okay, I'm already doing more than what she suggested. And it seems like they're not giving people credit to have for their own wisdom for what their body needs. Yeah. That's the disconnect, right? Yeah. Your body, you know, you know what the best diet for you is? Is the best diet that works for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, and this was the other thing that I found so upsetting. So I lived in uh, a cancer house. Jonas had already moved here to Norway, or not here, but had moved to Norway. And, um, you know, my diagnosis was really unexpected. And so I was fortunate enough to be able to have a solution to my housing problem. But, and it was brand new, it was beautiful. And there was a group kitchen and all of us had like a certain number of drawers, a certain section or a bunch of fridges so that you could have all your foods and Mm -hmm. cook when you needed. And that was great. And then there was like a pantry where you could like take stuff. But the there was a company called Ensure. Have you heard of this? They make like protein. Yes. Quote unquote protein it's drinks. It's in the hospital. It's, it's in the hospital. It's what they really push on you. They push it. Yeah. So there was this huge like refrigerator full of these Ensure shakes. If you read the back label, it's pure crap. Like it is the last thing cancer patients should be. Anybody, I think should be eating or people in a hospital should be eating. And yet they're like pushing it like, okay, you're, you're got to really try and take care of yourself and be healthy and here, have an insure shake. And I was like, are you kidding me? No. 
And so, and then I would see like these cancer patients who had traveled from all over and they were staying at the, the um, center while getting treatment. And they're like taking these shakes and they're just like popping them and drinking them. And I'm just like, stop, stop. But yeah. you know, you can't say anything, but it's, um, I guess that's why more and more people are going down to Mexico. Yeah. To, I, I mean, I know that you were very grateful. For I was that very place. satisfied with my yeah. treatment. Yes. Yeah. I am grateful. Yeah. One thing that's another view for with the diet though, is that if you are in balance, then you could eat you could eat McDonald's, you could eat that insure, mm-hmm. and your body is able to take out the nutrients that it needs and disregard the rest. Yeah. They say like your di- the stomach and your digestion is kind of at the height as you're a teenager and look mm-hmm. at teenage boys. Oh god, they're so skinny. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they, they eat like and they look pretty healthy. So much. And yeah. they're most of the time they're eating crap, but their body is able to take the nutrients that it needs to thrive. Yeah. And so that's also cool too to trust in the wisdom of the body. Mhm. That you we don't have to be so strict mm. to these diets fearing what will happen if we Go off course. Yes. You know, if we're fortified from the inside. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's definitely a journey. And it's, there's a lot of trial and error, I think, too. Um, you know, Ayurveda, and I know five elements, is all about treating the individual. And so what's going to be most healthy, most imbalanced, most harmonious for me is not going to be true for you. And in fact, would actually, if you tried to mimic my baseline of health, you would be out of balance. And I think a lot of people um, get scared by that idea. First of, at first, they're like, oh, that's great. Okay, I want it to be individual. Mm-hmm. And then they realize that now there's a responsibility on them. Oh, yeah. You play a role in your health. A big, big role time. in your health. Starting from the first minute. Yeah. yeah. And people just want to be told what to do. They're like, okay, Atkins diet, sure, that sounds great. Take out carbs. Mm-hmm. Oh, paleo, okay, great, I'm on board. Okay, X, Y, and Z. And it's like some of those diets work for some people. But it take it's a process to mm-hmm. find what's going to work for you. And um, I think a lot of people just don't have the patience and they want a quick fix. We've been conditioned to really expect instant gratification. Mm-hmm. And so people are like, oh, I tried that. Yeah, yeah, I tried that diet for three days. Didn't work for me. Oh, okay. <laughs> In Ayurveda, when we prescribe herbs... You have to give it at least four weeks yes. before you can start to see of consistently taking it before you can even say whether it works for you or not. And some things like gluten, for example, takes seven months to for your body yeah. to cleanse itself of. Mm. So some things you have to give seven months yeah. before you're noticing a difference, before you're at your baseline, your, wow. your healthy foundation. And one thing I found really fascinating, we were talking months ago about the perspective that um, Five Elements has on eating meat. Mm-hmm. Because this is always a big to hot topic, right? Totally. In the I was yoga surprised by this. And wellness yeah. community. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was a vegetarian for many years, mm-hmm. started eating meat, a little meat, um, while going through treatment. And I envisioned myself in the near future um, moving back into the vegetarian space. But that's because that's what works for me. And I know that's what works for me. And what type of blood are you? I don't know. 
Okay, so you got you've had lots of blood tests. You got to ask. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I've never paid attention. I know. As as I'm you talking about because you're into the you're into whatever is happening. It's already so overwhelming. I know. Well, and I hate having my blood drawn so much. I'm always like clenched up, like oh my god, please, please, please. <laughs> That's me too. And the it's biggest like, weenie. I know, such a weenie. And, um, you know, I'm just talking like, oh, we need to pay more attention to the details. I'm like, oh, I actually don't even know what kind of blood I have. Whoopsies. Um, it would be interesting to know. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, so you're, got, you're interested in being meat-free. Yeah, I, feel, I, I felt good eating meat when I needed to. My immunity was lower. I needed mm-hmm. more of that fortification and that strength. And I needed to build more... Um, muscle and I needed to just be stronger and you and I had an interesting conversation because you were informing me about some of your studies about how uh the animal protein affects the brain Mm -hmm. so what were some of the things that you've learned well um I'm so glad that you brought this up because being a yogi that was one thing I always struggled with Mm -hmm. is that I could not become a vegetarian right you had an autoimmune disease that and I would try and I just could not give up meat. That's what I desired the most. Yeah. And that's what I felt the greatest on. Um, so when I started Chinese medicine, and I guess the Chinese diet has a ton of animal protein in it mm-hmm. already. So, yeah, they do eat a lot of meat. Um, but they recommend that people have animal protein. Mm. And that there's a few reasons for it. So first of all, the um, omega-3s help um, that you can really only get from animal protein. You Mm -hmm. can't, you can get it through flax and whatnot, but it's so fragile of a composition that you have to be so informed and regimented Mm -hmm. in order to get what you need from it. Yeah. And the blood-brain barrier is so important, as is the, you know, barrier of the small intestine to the rest of your body, Mm -hmm. which people call leaky gut. Right. Which Western medicine doesn't recognize. Right. Most of the time, it's not necessarily that you're intolerant to that one thing that you're eating. It's just that there are gaps in your small intestine that food is leaking out to the rest of your body that shouldn't be there. And of course, you're going to have an intolerance to it. You would have an intolerance to anything that you took in. So again, your base Mm -hmm. isn't strong enough to handle what's coming its way. But they were looking at the blood-brain barrier as far as the omega-3s. And, you know, as I'm getting older, brain health and everything is becoming more of a spotlight for myself, especially with Alzheimer's and dementia. Dementia. I mean, it goes on and on. And yeah. they're looking, they're like, oh, well, because there was no barrier. Mm. And also, if somebody... I mean, this is such a heated subject, so for me to say this is, you know, a hot topic, but women who are pregnant or are conceiving and are not taking animal protein, we broke it down in a nutrition class, and basically 
a woman would need to be eating something like a gallon and a half of legumes and a variety of legumes, not just one type, per day Jeez. to be able to be taking in the nutrients mm-hmm. that they would need for their baby and for themselves to yeah. be healthy if they're vegan. Yeah. I mean, I just don't know anybody. How can you eat a gallon of legumes? <laughs> I mean, talk about digestion issues. <laughs> yeah. Plus, it's just not enjoyable. Let's just get to the root of it. It should be a beautiful experience yeah. Yeah. to eat your food. And I remember reading this book when I was getting into the Ayurveda about people who are having um, eating... Uh, you have to remind me. Things like anorexia or mm-hmm. bulimia. Yeah. Eating disorders. Yes. And that one of the things that they found is that there was a loss of connection with the food. Yeah. And they would bring what was, you know, usually is primarily women to these centers. Mm-hmm. And it was an Ayurvedic approach. And they would have them chop and make chutney. Because you're just, it's very time consuming. You're taking all these different ingredients and you're cutting them into very small pieces. So you're getting the odor. Mm. You know, there's the physical part. Yeah. There's the, the sight, the beautiful colors. Yeah. So then there's emotion that's usually involved with mm-hmm. that. You know, even just the sound. So all of your senses right. are um, involved. Involved. And that. An odor was mainly the the main component. Mm-hmm. That this was connecting people more to their food, yeah, which gave them the insight to what they needed to yeah. nurture themselves. Mm-hmm. And nothing is more powerful than your own power, right? To heal yourself <laughs> and feeling good about that, and yeah. you know, yeah, of course, food is such a double-edged sword in terms because so many people I mean it's necessary to live and yet because it's such a a a base necessity it's one of the things that people have had the most issues with because it's when you're hurting in an emotional way or there's some sort of trauma that you've experienced Mm -hmm. you know it comes down to control it comes down to okay well how do I feel like I have power in a situation where Mm -hmm. I feel powerless and you know Ayurveda talks about food is medicine oh yeah and some of the most important things about how we eat are is your food prepared with love are you eating in a clean and quiet distract uh distract what like Mm non-distracting space did you distraction free distraction free that's what I was looking for (laughs) um did you give thanks to the food and so there's all of these things that we can do that to some people might sound really hokey. But then when you actually start to practice them and you have this almost ceremonial experience of self-love because you are nurturing and nourishing yourself through your food choices. Mm-hmm. And again, this isn't necessarily something I do every meal I eat. I'm totally a work in progress. But the more that I try to incorporate it, the more I notice a difference. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and Ayurveda gets into the seasonal before yes. eating seasonal local yes. became a thing. That was the start. Right. I mean, that is Ayurveda. Yeah. And 
the most optimal form of eating Ayurvedically would be food that you have grown mm. because then you have a, a relationship with it. You've tended it, you've weeded it, you've watered it, you've pruned it, you've watched it grow, and then you harvest it when the food is ripe and ready, and then you would take it straight from your garden into your home, you prepare it, and you eat it that night. Yeah. You know, and it's this whole beautiful circle. Right. Which, once and again... so symbolic. Yeah. It from comes, start to finish. Right. It comes yeah. back to the cycles of nature, the cycles of life. Yeah. And one of the things that's really interesting about that is that it's just important to be able to take in the bounty of, of the harvest. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's not enough to grow it. Yep. It's being able to hold in. Mm-hmm the bounty of the harvest and you think about that as a metaphor for life most of us are working so hard we're pushing so hard yeah we're so busy when are we able to take in the bounty yeah does it go right through you or can you hold it Mm -hmm. and even further can you share it yeah exactly i mean that sharing component is so important too and it's um it's very the idea Theology behind it is quite simple, the Ayurveda perspective, but it it does get much more complicated. And yet, I'm always, again, baffled when people are like, they're so quick to try Atkins or Paleo or any of these like fad diets that come out. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, when they're given something that has been around 5,000 years, and granted, there have been changes and we do need to update some of the Ayurvedic medicine system for the modern time. I'm totally on board with that. Um, I think in general, the baseline principles are solid. Yes. And they work. They do. And yet sometimes worked, people are like, for me. they're not willing to work hard enough to make sustainable change. Again, they just want a quick fix. Mm-hmm. And it's really kind of a you hard... to be invested in your own health. Yeah. And one thing that's kind of crazy just anecdotally that I've um, experienced in Norway, uh, people ask me about Ayurveda all the time. And they're like, please teach a workshop. Please do this. Please do that. And I'm like, great. I want to share Ayurveda. I want there to be more of a community in Norway. And it's growing, but very slowly. There are a few people doing stuff with it. Um, But then I'll put up an Ayurveda workshop, or Mm -hmm. I will offer a workshop series, or I'll even, um, I think I tried to do like a day training and nobody will sign up or I'll have three people come to my workshop. And so then I stop offering them, obviously. <laughs> and then people are like, why aren't you teaching more Ayurveda? And I'm like, oh, my God, because nobody shows up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's why. Um, you know, I'm hoping that'll change because this wisdom and this medicine is so powerful and it's so elegant in the way in which it changes your life. And mm-hmm. You know, for me, Ayurveda 100% changed my life and my perspective and the way I live. And I know it's the same for you, too. Mm-hmm. And you now have even more information, more tools in your toolbox with the five elements. Oh, I think that there's, they're so related. Yeah. One thing that I, because I was considering becoming an Ayurvedic practitioner. Yeah. And I think that the deterrent for me, and this is, sounds like kind of what you're coming up against, is that there's so much ritual involved mm. in it. Yeah. And it's hard for that to be relevant in today's society. And especially if you start looking at some of the things like the enemas and mm-hmm. um, panchakarma. It, 
Yeah, it scares people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the best way to say it. It's a little scary. Yeah. Especially if you don't know what the outcome's going to be and you're just trusting in the process. Yeah. And the process is going to be a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, that I thought, oh my gosh, I'm with this, working with this modality, I am trusting in the medicine so much, but I'm also depending on the patient mm. to do the work. Yeah. And what's so cool about the five element acupuncture is that we do the points based on the spirit of the point. Mm. So all of the points have a spirit and that's how um when diagnosing people that's how you choose the points is because deep down inside they're asking Mm. or they're telling you what points oh cool to use and so it brings somebody i kind of think of it like um time massage Mm -hmm. like why go to a yoga class when you could just have somebody do it for you Yeah, I'm, I'm maybe not, I'm probably not going to respond to that analogy that well because I don't care for Thai massage. I've never actually gotten the yeah, point. Yeah. So little, so this is an interesting topic that yeah. I always like to talk about. And it's kind of like giving people their own experience, right? Yeah. So sometimes I'm going off a little bit of a tangent, but I'll bring it back. Okay. But sometimes like what is so hot in the yoga world right now is first of all, if you put the name power in Mm. your yoga brand or your yoga name or studio, people will come, people will show up. Yeah. At least in the States. (laughs) In the States. Um, and there has to be a DJ and it has to be dynamic and it has to be powerful. Sweaty. And there's some magic that has to happen. And in a way, and I like all of that. Yeah. But in a way, you're not passing the buck to the students saying, guess what? You're responsible for your own experience. Yeah. Like ultimately, you should be able to go to any yoga class and touch a deep part of yourself or at least even hear the deep listening mm-hmm. hear the deep part of yourself yeah without having to rely on somebody else to bring you there yeah and this is my this is totally my personal experience with five element it's not what my school teaches but i sometimes i know where i'm supposed to be I know the life that I want to live. Yeah. And sometimes it feels a little out of reach. Mm. You know? I can't... It doesn't matter how much I meditate. It doesn't matter all, you know, my diet. Sometimes it feels out of reach. Mm -hmm. And usually when I'm in that wobbly place, the first things to go are my discipline. Yeah, of course. And my practice. Yeah. And so it adds to it. And I just have found that the five element brings me there. And maybe we all have that yoga teacher or that meditation teacher mm-hmm. that does it for us every time. Yeah. And that was my experience. Like, as you just, given that strong connection to yourself where the option to do anything else other than what's the most serving to you is not there. Yeah. And what a great gift to have 
in right but it took your you life. time to find that oh you know and that's because Heck you yeah. you're one of those people who just like sometimes I laugh like you'll tell me like not recently because you've been in school so much but mm-hmm. before you started school and you're like oh yeah I went to this really cool women's circle and it was all about x y and z or you'd uh-huh. be like oh and I went to this workshop that was about uh cacao and oh x y like I've you, always been crazy a yes crazy workshops where I was like oh that's interesting uh-huh. like oh I've never heard of anything yeah. like that before yeah um but I think the the lesson or the takeaway in that is that you never gave up Mm-hmm. But I also think it's important to point out that you weren't, um, you also weren't so far off course that you were searching for external validation mm-hmm. through these kind of more um, extreme or esoteric mm-hmm. practices, you know. And I think that's something that, as teachers and you as a as a medical practitioner, you know, we have to talk about the ethics and the morals of our job and what we do and our scope of practice. And, you know, it's when somebody, many people come into yoga or they come into Ayurveda or they come into Chinese medicine because they're searching. Yeah. But is that searching rooted in a grounded, true place or is it rooted in a very unstable place where they're Mm -hmm. just like, I need, I need somebody to fix me. I need something to fix Mm -hmm. me. And I've seen both. And it's great to be a searcher. Yes. But you also have to have discernment. Uh, discernment. And what's interesting about discernment is it's not something that we're born with. Right. We teach ourselves. Right. That. And it's the tapas. It's the discipline and the yes, passion of the state, yes. of course. And, I mean, there's so much that goes into it where the, the, the um, sadakas, the seekers, that's what that is. Mm-hmm. The truth seekers. Mm-hmm. And there were the students. And you say that a lot in your yoga class. Yeah. Tell me what it, you say, yogis, truth seeker. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I use that word a lot yeah. Yeah. Um, because, you know, and that's the tagline for this podcast One Sacred Pause, invite radical self inquiry. Mm-hmm. Like, you have to invite it in. You have mm-hmm. to be willing to sit, even when it gets dis- discomfort or uncomfortable. And um, that's the discipline part of it to stay the course and that's what the yoga sutras teach too is that in order for it to be a yoga practice and i'm not talking asana i'm talking a spiritual practice mm-hmm. um there's a couple of components that have to be there you have to have uh the intention you have to have steadfastness or consistency and you have to have longevity like when somebody's i'll ask somebody oh how long have you been doing yoga and they're like well i've been practicing for 10 years i'm like oh, okay cool I say well but it's off and on Mm-hmm. You know, I'll go for a few months and then I won't go for two years and I'll come back. And I'm like, okay, that's great. That's where you're at. But that's not necessarily a dedicated yoga practice. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of, again, I get it. Life gets crazy. Things happen. Things come up. But if we're really searching from a grounded place for a deeper connection to self and a deeper connection to source... We have to do the work. Mm-hmm. There is no shortcut. And that's <laughs> yeah. the really unsexy, unglamorous answer. But it pays off big. <laughs> yeah. The payoff is always so big. And I always think of that whenever I'm in that area of discomfort. Yeah. I think about times in my past where I have felt the same way. Yeah. And how I would describe it for myself is, you know, this kind of uncomfortable twisting feeling mm. in the pit of my stomach oh, I hate that and feeling. kind of constriction in my chest because it's the fear of the unknown. It's the fear 
And often for me, it's not so much like taking that step forward. Mm-hmm. It's giving up the past. Yeah. It's giving up what I know. Like, if I give this up, am I going to be able to find better? Right. Yeah. Well, and yeah. And every single time I'm afraid to take that step forward, I think back to like, well, that was that. And it happens that, you know, <laughs> constantly. <laughs> but I think back to the times where it was the feeling I had the most sensation and that it was always worth it. Mm-hmm. And in what was holding me back the most was that fear of letting go of what I know. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then that, knowing the reward and how I felt later, mm-hmm. um, gives me the courage. Yeah. And to that's always jump. That's a really big part of it is, and I think that's where a lot of people get stuck is they're unsatisfied with their life. They're unsatisfied with their experience. They're in pain and they have suffering and yet they don't know how to break that cycle. They don't know how to get off that hamster wheel. Mm -hmm. And I think my personal observation has been that what holds people back is the fear of the unknown. At least they hate their job. They hate their partner. They hate where they live. They blah, 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 whatever the situation is. At least they've identified it. They've put a name to oh, it. Oh, they're aware. So they're they're aware of what the problem is. Once you're aware, then it gives you the opportunity to shift. Well, yes and no. There has to be that courage uh-huh. component too. Uh, yeah, but I think yeah. people get stuck because they're mm-hmm. they're actually in a weird way. They're comforted by the naming of what is happening in the situation. Oh, for sure. And a lot of times where, you know, we get a lot out of being sick. Or we get a yes, lot about the victim not mentality. Being well. Yes. Yes. But this is what this is the nature aspect of it is that if you don't have the strength to make those decisions for yourself, yes, circumstances will absolutely. So it's not like you can yes. wade the storm, right? <laughs> well, not making a choice is still making a choice. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it will it will happen. Life will come. Yeah. And it's, and it happens to everyone. No one can, no one is apart from that. Right. Well, all of our life is a choose your own adventure book. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people, unfortunately, their suffering is caused by something they could change. Oh yeah. Most of the time. It's just, they're frozen with fear and they're frozen with, um, in particular judgment. What are mm-hmm. other people going to think? What's my family going to say? Yeah. And I know I've certainly experienced that. And it took me a lot of time to kind of process beyond that to have that courage and that strength to forge my own path. Like it, sometimes I just kind of will take stock and I'm like, how did I end up running a yoga school in Oslo, Norway? <laughs> I know. Like it's the weirdest kind of um, yeah. set of circumstances. Yeah. Like, well, I'm proud of you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's a lot of hard work and I stay the course. I show up when I want to and when I don't want to. But it took me a lot of um, real work. You've worked hard. to, And I'm not talking the work of running a business. I'm talking the work, the, the inside work. Yeah. And it's, um, there's, again, no shortcut. 
And so when people are like, wow, that's so cool. Like, how did that happen? Or, or when I meet people who are really inspiring, who are out there living their truth, living their dharma, and it's powerful to witness when somebody's doing that. Absolutely. Because more often than not, they are breaking the status quo. Mm -hmm. At least for me, the people I admire are the ones who are blazing their own path. And I think many people tend to like look from far away and they're like, wow, that's so cool. That's so inspiring. Mm -hmm. And they get like a little jolt of like, oh, maybe I could do that. Mm -hmm. But then when push comes to shove and they're like, oh, this actually seems really hard. Yeah. Then they maybe back off and it's, we see this in yoga all the time. People get fired up, they become a yoga teacher mm -hmm. and then they don't realize how hard it is to actually make a living as a yoga teacher. Oh, yeah. Like you have to be really strategic. You have to really work hard. You have to be networking. You have to do X, Y, and Z. And so many people give it a year, give it two years, give it three years if they're younger. And then maybe, you know. A couple of lean years. A couple of lean years. <laughs> yes. With five roommates. <laughs> and then before you know it, they're back at a quote unquote real job uh -huh. or a corporate job uh -huh. with a steady paycheck and benefits and a retirement plan maybe. Um, and so you and I are just now old enough, I think, where some of the people that maybe we started teaching with have been weeded out. Mm -hmm. Like if you're a full-time teacher in your 30s, your 40s, you've been doing it for a while. Yeah. And so you know the game. You know how to create or you've already created a career for yourself mm -hmm. um, that's sustainable. But that's because you worked hard and you didn't get Yeah. Up. And I find that. I mean, I went through the same thing, and I think it's harder now if you're becoming a yoga Sure. There's uh, so much instructor. more competition. Yeah. Is that – so the, a 200-hour isn't enough. This no. is why it's so great that you offer the continuing right. education and the mentorship and the business aspect. Yeah. Because once – a 200-hour is just like – Opening the window. Yeah. It's opening the window to yourself, to the practice of yoga, to the potential of where this could go. Right. Your life as a yogi. Yeah. And you need to do more training. Yes. And you of course to. you desire to do more training because it's the most fascinating thing on earth. Yes. But you've got to make the money mm -hmm. to do the training. Yeah. And you can't get the jobs... Until you have the experience. Yeah. So it's a it's a hard one. And yeah. so I think what does bring the teachers who are able to make it work is that they are more, they know who they are. They're mm -hmm. more connected yes. to themselves and they have something to stand for and something to share in this lifetime. Yes. And I love this quote by Joseph Campbell the privilege of a lifetime mm. is knowing or being yourself. Yeah. I, I think it's being too. yourself is the quote. However, this is kind of bringing it right back to the very beginning. The problem about being a human being mm. is how do you know what it is that you most desire? Or how do yes. you get to the point where you know who you are? And it's doing that work. Yeah. And so it's so cool to have this yoga practice the whole time, you know, walking beside you. Yeah. 
holding your hand as you're going through this journey. And then hopefully you're able to translate your own experience and your teachings. Yes. And I think that maybe that might be the answer instead of like, working so hard to get the next training is yeah it's super important to continue yeah that continuing education part but the whole time is the self-inquiry yes yeah yeah and that's what's cool about it that's what I love about it yeah I mean that's my very favorite part of the whole thing (laughs) even though it can be really scary and uncomfortable and some days I like open up that that chapter I'm like okay Jess today time to do some practice and I open it and I'm like nope not today. <laughs> Not feeling like it. But, you know, you can only have those rationalizations or justifications so many times yeah. before you slide out of your practice. And so it's a constant recalibration right. of your relationship to the practice. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, for me personally, it's the most fascinating thing. And that's why I've devoted my life to teaching. And I have my absolute dream job and there's nothing else I really could envision myself doing. Could I have another career? Absolutely. You know, I'm educated. I'm smart. Um, hardworking. Hardworking. But, you know, the, I think the goal is to find, of course, our dharma. Find what it is that lights us up. Because it comes back to my comment earlier. Like when you see somebody who has that vitality or that, that vibration and you're just like, Wow. What is that? I want that. Mm-hmm. That's somebody who's in alignment with the energies of the universe and what their goal is or their mission is or what they're called to do. Mm-hmm. And I give this example. And all of us have that inside of we us. We do. Absolutely. It's accessible to each and every one of us. I believe that. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think just some people are so far from that, if, you know, it feels like the, the, the light, the beacon is so far away mm-hmm. from them. And it's many people then start, they fall into that trap of like, all right, well, you pay your taxes, then you die. Mm-hmm. That's life. And I think that's such a sad space to be in. You know, our, our natural state is one of love, is one of joy, is one of compassion. And yet somehow we've lost our way. And that's the whole, like, that's yoga in a nutshell. We're trying to find our way back home. And why do you think that is, that people have lost their way? I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons. I mean, I think that's the nature of the spiritual practice. Like, yeah, we're, Ayurveda says, the reason we're here is to find a remembrance of our own true nature. Yes. And so if we're trying to find a remembrance, that means we have to have forgotten. And I think that's why it takes lifetimes for us to ebb and flow through these practices and through the process of remembrance. Um, But then, too, I think about just the state of our modern society. And more, I think, more than any other time in history, it's been less, I mean, well, I don't know. I mean, this conversation could go in so many different directions. Exactly. On on one (laughs) hand, I think we are at, maybe a greater disadvantage than previous uh, times in history because we are so cerebral and we're so disconnected and we're so fast. Everything's instantaneous. There's so many distractions. And so many distractions. so many options. I mean, think about it. When was the last time you stood in line at the grocery store and didn't look at your phone? Mm -hmm. Well, 
I live in a weird, weird world. <laughs> yeah, you do live in a little weird world. But I would say for the average person, like I catch yeah. myself doing this all the time and I'm like, oh my God, Jessica, it's five minutes. Put your phone away. Mm-hmm. But we've, we're accelerating the rate at which we live our life. And that is the polar opposite of what Ayurveda and yoga teach. In fact, we need to be slowing down. We need to be grounding. We need to be heavier. We need to be um, more thoughtful. Mm-hmm. And and if you think about it in terms of nature, you know, if you don't plant the seed, nothing grows. Yeah. If you don't wait for spring and the rains to come, nothing grows. It's, you know, you have to, everything, every season has its timing. Yeah. Right. But then you, you can't rush it. You can't And you rush can't it. skip any of it. No, you can't. It has to go in a certain order. <laughs> yeah. And... But we could also play the devil's advocate and argue the other way that, oh, well, actually, we're at a really exciting time for human enlightenment because because we have access to so much more information. We don't have to be dependent on our location. And, you know, we might have a good local teacher. We might not. Now we can travel much easier to go to trainings or see teachers. We can do online trainings. Mm -hmm. We can, you know, read articles and blogs from people mm-hmm. and teachers around the world. And so on one hand, that part's cool. We have podcasts. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much good information. There's a lot of bad information too. <laughs> so we need to come back to the Viveka, the discernment. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, how do we know if we can trust the source? And I think that's a big lesson too for any student. And I think that comes down to how it feels inside of you. Yeah. So it's your internal compass. Yeah. It's your own navigation. Mm-hmm. And something that I've been really working with lately is when I'm in a, perhaps I'm working with a patient or it's everyday life. And I think, I'm thinking to myself, should I do this or should I say this or comment on this? And I take a pause, I check in with myself mm-hmm. and I'm looking for one of a few answers. Yes, no wait or gather more information Mm. and I wait to hear what the answer is yeah and I love this idea of being maybe that's about knowing yourself Mm -hmm. is being able to hear what's intuition and to take that pause yeah yeah and we're all born with it yeah and then we lose it yeah so like it's the remembering Mm -hmm. right Well, and it's a muscle. Well, it's like a muscle. If we're not constantly strengthening our intuition or giving it a chance to be heard, then we are then only thinking with the mind. And we know as yogis, (laughs) we can't trust our mind. You can't get, you can't think your way to it. No, you can't. (laughs) You can't think your way there. (laughs) Our mind is the slipperiest, wiliest Uh organ that is designed to distract us. Uh And I mean, same with the sense organs. That's why we have Pratyahara, the fifth limb of yoga, which is about sensory withdrawal and purposefully and intentionally disconnecting from the information we get from our senses that lead us down the path of distraction. It's like, okay, well, if we're going to turn inward, start to prepare for that inquiry or the contemplation or the meditation, um, it is impossible to be in connection to the external and be in a state of connection to the internal. Mm -hmm. It's either or. 
one or the other. Mm-hmm. And of course, I think there are so many different, you know, this is a podcast that is dedicated to talking about meditation and practices of stillness and spiritual inquiry. But there are many ways in which we can practice the focus um, that comes before the meditation. So limbs six and seven go hand in hand. You can do a walking meditation. Today we went we went to a kundalini class. We did mantra mm-hmm. meditation. One of my favorites, mantra. Mm-hmm. There's so many different ways to get into that state that are external, but we have to be very careful about how we're doing that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where some people perhaps lose sight is, again, not being clear enough and not listening to the information they're getting from within. Mm-hmm. That is that intuition. Okay, is this a real practice or am I just giving myself a rationalization or justification to not do the work? Yeah. And I always had an inquiry about that sensory withdrawal. Yeah. Because I thought, like, you know, and this is just my thinking. Yeah. Is that, <laughs> no one else's. Um, is that, you know, those senses are so biological, so yeah. primordial. And so, you know, does it make sense to just completely disregard them and avoid them? And what I came up with is that it actually doesn't have anything to do with the senses. Mm-hmm. But it has to do... So in Five Element... We believe that one of the reasons, one of the causes for disease is joy. And it's kind of that same idea. The cause of disease is joy? One of the excess joy. Oh. So it's the idea that you, and this is talked about all the time in yoga, is that you follow your passion Mm -hmm. for what's going to give you the immediate happiness. Yeah. And so that... If you bring it back to the sensory withdrawal, yeah. like you, you know, your senses are enlightened towards your passion. Right. Oh, heck yeah, you're going to follow that. Yeah. So the withdrawal is about bringing it back to center. And I was, I always wondered like about that excess joy. Like, it's something that I think about yeah. all the time. Like what is up with that? And it's, I think it's, that's what it is, is when you're following a false truth. Yeah. And it, to get the immediate. The high. Right. And that's, we all know that that's not true happiness. Mm, that's it's not sustainable. Not, it's not sustainable. It's not what lasts. Mm. And it's also not, you can't share it because it's very pers- egotistical. It's very mm-hmm. self-serving. And so, like, the true happiness is something that is rooted in taking that pause, mm-hmm. that sacred pause. Yes. Taking that moment and then checking in with that deepness inside of you, perhaps not following those biological... Urges. Urges. Yeah. Yeah. And then following, not going for the access ex- excess of joy... It's just the joy, mm-hmm. the balance of joy, like yeah. everything. There's a balance, right? Well, no, that's why I always like to make the distinction between like joy and happiness and contentment or santosha is for me in my brain, it just makes more sense. Like, oh, joy and happiness are these ideas that are a little bit more frenetic 
at least for me, where it's more of like the high, high, like it's my birthday. And then, then the inevitable crash of like, oh my God, it's the day after my birthday. What a bummer or, you know, silly example, but, um, then your highs and your lows get more dramatic, which is the opposite of what we're hoping to achieve in yoga. We want the highs and the lows to be minimalized mm -hmm. so that we're more stabilized, mm -hmm. closer to that midline. Mm -hmm. Um, and so for me, that's what contentment is, is being in a state that's not high, high, that's not low, low. Yep. That's just an overall quiet burning of gratitude of like, oh, wow. Okay. I'm so grateful for my life. I'm so grateful for my health. I'm so grateful to fucking be here. <laughs> and when you reframe your experience, oh man, I had such a bad day. I was late for the bus and then the train was canceled and blah, blah, blah. Like it's so easy to wander into the, the negative space. But when we then counterbalance that with some sort of contentment of like, oh, okay, but wow, how lucky am I that I can afford a bus pass? How lucky am I that I have a home to go home to? How lucky am I that I have food in my fridge? And then all of a sudden, it's those high highs and those low lows don't matter. It's all a fleeting experience anyways when your baseline is some form of gratitude. Also for the experiences that are not so pleasant. You and I have had those. <laughs> We're like, oh, okay, buckle up. What's the lesson here? And I think that's the spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. It's carrying that, that thread of contentment. Mm -hmm. I think the first time that I kind of recognized contentment, I've always been a really passionate person. So I get fired up about stuff. And that, yeah. that is one of my strengths because it gives me momentum to move towards what I want to create. Yeah. But it's also one of my weaknesses because I get, um, you know, eccentric about it. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I remember, you know, I had been doing my work and I remember somebody called me on the phone and they told me something that normally I would be so passionate and so fired up about it. And I felt neutral. Mm. And then I was you know, actually driving around Boulder and I was looking at the flat irons and the sun was rising and I kind of looked off at the horizon and I thought to myself, is this contentment? <laughs> is that what that feels like? Is this, and I, the answer that I got was yes. Yeah. Yeah. You can kind of just step back from it and enjoy it and take it for what it is. Yeah. But it doesn't have to be this, you know, very extreme um experience yeah <laughs> right and and that was enjoyable right i remember congratulating myself that day <laughs> and you should i mean that's spiritual progress <laughs> yeah. yeah well and it's so funny you know you and i as we've grown and and kind of found our way a little bit in life and of course that's continuing to evolve for both of us and our our businesses and our offerings um you know, but I think back and we talk about this all the time, but how, you know, when we met and, you know, navigating through our 20s and early 30s, like we're both such doers mm -hmm. and it was always like chaos. Mm -hmm. Go, 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 go. Okay. And then mm -hmm. I'm going there and then I'm going there and then I'm doing this. I'm doing and that's that. what we worked within. That right. was what we were That was the structure. So that's actually what we worked best in. Right. Yeah. And yeah. it's for me, that's such a crazy, like, I look back on those times in my life where I'm like, whoa, what, what was going on there? You know? And then now my main goal is how do I slow down? 
Mm-hmm. And also when you're younger, that's the Vata stage of life too. Well, it's not. The Vata stage of life is oh, the, when you're the older. Oldest. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. the Pitta. Right. It's the beginning of the Pitta time, which, which is, is go, 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 energy. do, do, do. Yep. It's very solar. It's very masculine. It's very effort oriented, yeah. um, goals oriented for sure. Uh-huh. And you and I have and a lot of And also kind of selfish too. Super selfish. Yeah. You know, that's one of the things that I have a lot of discomfort around is within my spiritual inquiry, my selfishness. And of course we have to, there's a healthy amount of selfishness and ego. Mm-hmm. Um, but seeing that for me is very uncomfortable and trying to then get out of a space of selfishness and into a space of service. And that's something you do really well, I think. Um, and is a big passion for you is the seva mm-hmm. and the selfless service that yoga teaches us. And I mean, throughout the years, you've done tons of different things related to seva. What are some of your favorites? Um, well, you know, what are my favorites are kind of changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> which hopefully they should. You know, we have the right to change. Yeah, I was just thinking about this this week. So I would say my favorites are what I would call the win-wins. You know, you're looking at, you know, several populations or circumstance. You're like, how can, you know, this is a population um, that is underserved and this is a population that's overserved. So where can, where can it meet? Mm -hmm. And let's find those win-win relationships. And I've even heard, you know, worked with clients who have been like, you know, we have a certain amount of money that we give to charity every year. And it's just so hard to find good charities. And I remember being shocked by that comment, but also finding some truth in that. Yeah. Too. And, um, so with social justice, there's this idea that, you know, you can recognize a population that there's, different ways that you, different words that you can use that are underserved or overpowered or underprivileged. You know, there's lots Mm -hmm. of different words. Right. Right. And it's, it's not enough to give them the resources. Right. But it's about, are you willing to give up your some of your privilege for Mm. somebody else's underprivilege. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And so in that frame, there's no such thing as a true win-win. Yeah. So, you know, this is something that I'm wondering myself and Buddha, when he saw people on the other side of the wall that were starving or aging, Mm -hmm. he wasn't, throwing resources over the wall. Yeah. He was giving up his privilege to help others. Yeah. And in the end, he helped himself. Right. But one of the, I think my anchor of Seva is this idea that really getting, and it goes back to know yourself. Mm Mm-hmm. Really getting in touch with what is it that you you stand for yeah. in this lifetime? Yeah, 
And one way to get there is to ask yourself the question, what is it that breaks my heart the most? Mm. Oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> oh. just take a pause. Just what if you have like a there. huge long list <laughs> of things that break your heart? Yeah, and, yeah. You know, it also comes into this idea, this is something I struggle with, compassion fatigue. Mm-hmm. When you don't have strong enough boundaries between mm-hmm. your compassion or your empathizing and a cause that breaks your heart. Right, right. That, and that's a great, great comment. So if you look at what breaks your heart the most, like that's your passion. Mm. That's your seva. That's what you have to share with the world. Yeah. But also... Most likely, it's probably tied to one of your greater traumas in Mm. your life. Or a past life. Or past life. Yeah. And so you're healing yourself. But when you step up to that role, that's when you're in the real work, Mm. right? And Mm -hmm. that's what you said could happen is that fatigue. And I think that that fatigue often happens because, number one, you know, we may not be doing it for the right reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Or we might be thinking our way through it. Yep. Or also, I mean, this. I trust that everybody knows this already, but the word empowering others or the phrase empowering others is so charged for me because it's claiming that you have power and they don't yeah so when I, well or that you somehow have the ability to give them power yeah rather than it coming from within them and what we do in yoga ayurveda acupuncture do you always look at others with the highest regard mm. that's where you start yeah that's your interface that's your boundary mm-hmm is yeah. holding somebody in the highest regard. Well, and sometimes that has to be done from a distance. Mm-hmm. Like that was the big part of the puzzle for me is so many of us, we are compassionate beings and we do want to do anything we can to alleviate suffering when we see it. Mm-hmm. I, be- I believe that is the baseline of humans. Mm-hmm. Of course, there are bad people out there that do bad things. But I think that's more of a conversation about karma than it is about our our baseline truth. Yeah. I believe that all humans are good. Yeah. But we sometimes have to play a role in order for our own spiritual learning. Or even if we think about karma in a more global context or a collective karma, sometimes there has to be a bad guy or woman doing bad things in order for us collectively as a society to learn that lesson or go through that experience. That, of course, is a much more in-depth conversation for another day. <laughs> but when it comes to the save and it comes to this idea of compassion and how do we be of service yet still maintain our own boundaries mm-hmm. and protect our own energy, mm-hmm. um, a lot of people, I think, give away too much. Yeah. And what I would like to add to, you know, you always hold others in the highest regard mm-hmm. and you hold yourself in the highest regard. And sometimes that's the hardest step. Absolutely. Yes. We are our harshest critics and self-forgiveness is really uncomfortable. It is really hard. And yeah, I think that 
is where a lot of suffering comes from. You know, I made that comment earlier that within these kind of alternative therapy communities, a lot of people who are suffering come to hide out or they come to look for answers on more of a superficial level. But I think a lot of that stems from a deep mistrust of themselves yeah, and a lack of connection to self. And it's causing them to act out in ways that aren't appropriate, inappropriate sexual relationships, inappropriate relationships to um, food, food, money, money, drugs, <laughs> alcohol. Yeah. Like there's so many ways in which we, we can try and we hurt, we're self-sabotaging. Mm-hmm. We're creating mm-hmm. a problem to cover up the real problem. Yeah. So I want to go back to the... The Seva. So tell me yeah. about your Seva project and yeah. how that came about and what's yes. happening. Yes, thank you for asking, C. Um, it's something that I've been wanting to do for so long, and I feel so proud and grateful that um, the Atman Yoga School is now in a little bit of a position where I can offer scholarships. And my dream would be to continue that as the Atman Yoga School grows to be able to offer more full tuition scholarships. Mm-hmm. I think... Um, there's a real conversation in the yoga community right now about the haves and the have-nots. Yeah. And, and you have to pay to play. You have to pay to play. And it's all white to women. to the knowledge, mm-hmm. you have to have the money. Yeah. It's for wealthy people mm-hmm. is what the perception is. And so it excludes a lot of people. And um, yoga is for everybody. And yoga has the power to heal anyone, I believe. Of course, again, another topic here, another component is if we look at the the history of yoga, it's always been an exclusive practice. Mm-hmm. And yet we, we forget that sometimes. It was deeply rooted in patriarchy. <laughs> it was originally just for the Brahmins, the upper class men who were going to become these Vedic priests. And, um, you know, of course, there's different schools and different lineages throughout history and the sadhus and the the wandering tribes in the forests of India. And, and then the circus aspect. Right. Well, then yeah. we bring in the asana, the more modern component um, that's really only, you know, 120 years old, maybe, in terms of what we think of asana today. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's so many, so many things that come into play with that. But coming back to the seva aspect and the Atman Yoga School and what we're doing is um, you know, one of the, I love power vinyasa, of course, like that's, that's my jam always has been always will be, but I have a very deep love affair with restorative yoga and yoga nidra. Mm-hmm. And these are because these are two of the practices. It's like the yin and the yang. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And these are two of the practices where I've had some of the most healing occur. And it's all about stillness. It's all about slowing down. It's all about turning inward. And I think that can be scary for some people, but when it happens and when they make themselves do it, the results can come quite quickly. I think that's been my experience and, and my experience watching my students. So I do one of the most popular trainings at the Atman Yoga School is a weekend restorative and yoga nidra training. It's 21 hours and it's always booked. It's always full. Um, there's usually a waiting list and, and I love that that people are getting so interested in these practices. And in Norway, anyways, yin is really popular. And yin yoga is kind of the answer to the more strenuous asana practices. I personally don't know much about yin. 
I've only done it a handful of times. I'm not trained in it. It's very different from restore. And I think people have confusion around that, like the difference in the practice. Um, but so anyways, because these trainings are successful, I now have the ability to gift a full tuition scholarship for each training that I run. Mm-hmm. And this is a need-based, uh, diversity-based, or uh, extraordinary circumstance-based scholarship that I offer through an application process. And it's um, a way for me to give back to the community mm-hmm. and for awesome. somebody who maybe really needs this practice but can't afford it or doesn't feel welcome. Like, I think that's a really sad comment when people say they don't feel welcome in yoga because they only see skinny white women or they only see people wearing fancy yoga clothes or they don't know what to do. And it's too like this, even though I've been practicing yoga forever and teaching forever, I still feel that sometimes there are some studio spaces where it's built. They want their studio to feel exclusive and like I'll walk in sometimes to these studios and not necessarily in Norway, but definitely in the States. And I'm uncomfortable. I feel intimidated. And I know what's happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I'm like, wow, if I feel intimidated in this space, mm-hmm. what could somebody else who's newer to the practice yeah, feel? Totally. And that makes me hurt in my heart. Yeah. That somebody might not have access to these tools mm-hmm. because it's grown up into such a, a, a showy practice. Yeah. And that just reminds me of, so in order to support myself as a yoga teacher, I have to, I was following the money. Yeah. And so that was privates. That yeah. was, you know. Did you ever do corporate yoga? Mm-hmm. You taught at Aspen Ski Co. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like I've done it all. <laughs> I've tried it all. Um, but it was working for the doing privates with, with you know, most of the time pretty um, demanding clients. Mm-hmm. And what I was calling the housewife mafia. Yeah. Because who else is going to come to a class in the middle of the day? Yeah. You know, honestly, Mm -hmm. it's people who can afford to do it. And I was getting actually a little bit of backlash for getting frustrated with that. And Mm. I thought, gosh, I don't know. It's hard for me to tap into my inspiration when I'm teaching the same client over and over. Mm. And, um, I luckily, I work for a nonprofit, Lead with Love, and they were working with the city and the county in Aspen, Colorado. And I was able to go to people's workplaces. Oh, right. I remember. This is so cool. Yeah. I'm still doing this. Oh, awesome. And offer people yoga in the morning or the afternoon. Sometimes I, you know, lunch was included, a very Mm -hmm. healthy, organic lunch. I was bringing yoga to a population that would never go to yoga class. And Mm -hmm. that's why we were going to them. Yep. And they didn't, they weren't forced to be there. They didn't have to participate if they didn't want to. And my, I was inspired. My spark was lit. 
Yeah. Because I got to see it from the beginner's mind again. Mm. And I wonder what happens when people have so much money that their senses become a little bit dulled in Mm. a negative way. Like, the extraordinary becomes less extraordinary. Yeah. Because you're used to it every day. Yes. And I just... The way that the students, these students were reacting to yoga was reaffirming to me that, number one, it works. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that I had something really valuable to offer. Yeah. And a lot of these people, when we started, they couldn't sit on the ground. And often they had a hard time even sitting in a chair. Wow. So that's where we started. And now they're yogis. <laughs> they're power yogis. Power yogis. Oh, my God. So, so cool. You know, that's also going. It's not enough to be a teacher. It's not enough to be a student. Like, the other people in the class are going to be learning from this student, these students. Mm-hmm. You're going to be learning from, the, you know, it's going to be... Yeah, mixed. That's the beauty of it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why, you know, yoga is not just a practice that we do twice a week to have a nice butt and good six pack. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's when we're living the practice of yoga, it is infused in every part of our life, our relationships, our food, our self, the choices we make. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why I'm so passionate about yoga is because it's not compartmentalized. Mm-hmm. It can be in everything. And so it, it becomes who we are. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's just such an exciting promise that, um, you know, we have tools and we have a blueprint and we have a frame and a structure to work within to help us navigate this experience of being human yet seeking connection to spirit. And so, you know, that's why it's so cool to see what you're doing with acupuncture and five elements. And it's just one more modality. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I was wondering about your Save Us the Scholarship. Mm -hmm. And which, as far as paying it forward, you know, this concept of paying it forward. Yes. Would one of the requirements be that that person would actually need to be teaching yoga after the training? Or is it enough just for them to learn about yoga? Yeah, that's I'm a, curious. No, that's I'm a good question. Um, when I created the scholarship, I thought about it. Yeah. Um, I know there are some schools that have that as a requirement for their okay. scholarship that you're going to then take the training and bring it into a special population. Okay. Um, I decided to not make that a requirement for the scholarship Mm -hmm. because my philosophy with running the Atman Yoga School is that um, I think a yoga teacher training should be mandatory for everyone. Yeah. Does that mean everybody's going to be a teacher? high school graduation. Right. Yeah. (laughs) No. I mean, I would say anecdotally, probably only 50% of the people who graduate from my trainings Mm -hmm. go on to actually teach. Yeah. And I think nationally it might be 25, 30%. Yeah. I would imagine a third is about where it might be nationally Um, because what you learn in a good teacher training, (laughs) which I think mine is um, you learn so much more than how to teach. Yeah. You 
learn new skills, new perspectives, new ways of viewing the world and relationships. And um, so with the idea of my scholarship being for people who really need healing in their life, yeah, many of them probably are not going to be teachers. So, And it also could be paid forward without being a teacher, but just by being. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And because it comes back to the idea that when we support one another and we encourage other people to shine, mm-hmm. we're influencing the whole population. We're raising the vibration together. Absolutely. And so if somebody can just get something out of the training that's valuable to them and allows them to maybe heal just in a small little, small little way, yeah. then I think I've done my job. Yeah. Or more accurately, the yoga has done its job. Yeah. Um, it speaks for itself. It exactly. speaks for itself. And so if somebody wanted to take the training and go and teach, awesome. I would love that. But um, it's not a requirement because not everybody wants to be a teacher. Yeah. So yeah. it's... Um, I appreciate that. Yeah. That's a good way. I was thinking about... Um, so I, I did this retreat um, that I was guiding and one of the things that we did around the campfire at night is we take, it was all women and we take turns, um, talking about our, what we're most proud of in this mm-hmm. lifetime. And yeah. I think as women, that's kind of important to celebrate yeah. our accomplishments, our successes, our successes. Yes. Right. And it came to me and I was like, actually what I'm most proud of in this lifetime is graduating from college. Mm. So I'm a first-generation college graduate. Yeah. And a woman. So it's the first person in my family yeah. to do it. And, and I'm a female. And so it was a really big deal. And yeah. I'd say I didn't have a lot of guidance in that direction as far as mm-hmm. going to school, how to even do it. And so I was yeah. navigating this on my own. Mm. And it was... You know, I was about halfway through school college, and I got called down to the financial aid office, and they said, you received a, spo- a scholarship full ride. And I was working the whole time through school wow. because that's what I had to do. Yeah. And um, I, I was like, what? I, you know, I didn't apply for anything mm. other than, you know, through FAFSA. Yeah. And they said, yeah, well, you were chosen. And there's a woman who was a first-generation college graduate and her family, also in the School of Natural Resources at the University of Idaho, which is what I was in. And she wanted um, to this scholarship to be to somebody in that same demographic as she was in. And this woman changed my life. And I mm. never met her, but we'd correspond, snail yeah. mail, yeah. for those, in, until she passed away. Wow. And I, that touched me. That was part of that proud moment. Mm. It was also getting the unexpected support yeah. from somebody who had been there, too. Yeah. And then, of course, oh, that gives me chills. deep down in my heart, I want nothing more than to offer that mm-hmm. when when I can. Yeah. And so it kind of goes back to what you were saying for your seba. It's like just because they don't teach, they may, the graduates may not t- teach right away, mm-hmm. 
You could be teaching in other ways. Exactly. And you don't know what's going, what seed's going to be planted or right. what's going to grow from that. That's that's what's so beautiful about it. Right. Well, and but I think that's an important thing for the seva too is it's not we don't there's no expectation and there's no we don't need to know what they're going to do with that that it's enough it's enough to give it and so that's why i don't really care what they do with the training it's it's actually none of my business Mm -hmm. i think i mean if they want to teach and they want some help with that of course i would continue to help you know mentor them or answer questions but it's that's the nature of seva is there's no expectation of a return and I think it feels super good to be in a position of any SAVA act, but that shouldn't be the motivation. The motivation should just be to be a good human mm-hmm. and recognizing that that is part of the spiritual practice because what it ultimately comes down to is this idea of oneness and we're removing those barriers of separation. Like, Oh, okay. Somebody's struggling. Somebody's in suffering. Like, what can I do to help? Mm-hmm. And that's the question I think that we have to train ourselves to ask, how can I help? How can I serve? And we do that. I mean, it's amazing. It gets us out of ego. (laughs) It gets us out of a victim mentality. It gets us out of our own story. And we're doing something positive Mm -hmm. for our community. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, my, my dream would be to you know, continue to offer these scholarships and expand, be able to offer scholarship for my 200 hour, for my 340 hour advanced training. Um, my dream would actually be to find a, a corporation or a company that would match. Mm-hmm. So I give one scholarship and then there's a second scholarship that they sponsor Yeah, through the Atman Yoga School. Cool. So we'll see where it goes. But um, right I'm- now I'm taking applications. 2019 <laughs> trainings coming up, Oslo and Trondheim. So, and also having those corporations put people in the training. Right, right. Knowing that when they come back, and when I say corporation, it doesn't have to be a corporation, a business. Yeah. Knowing that when those graduates come back to the business, that they have something that much greater to offer. Right. Well, I mean, they don't have to necessarily work at the business, but it's just the business would uh, pay for somebody. Right. Yeah. To I attend. understand that. Yeah. But I was saying, thinking about more right. of a connection. If they did send somebody from their business, yeah. like was, that would be cool yeah, too. Yeah. I was thinking about businesses who um, they pay their employees like um, for 100 hours of volunteer work right. per year. Right. You yep. know, it's about like giving back to the community. Yeah. Employees still getting paid, but then that employee is like learning something that they're bringing back right. to the business. Yeah. So we'll see. I mean, that's the cool thing about running your own business is you can make up the rules. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I love that part of it. And I love being able to think about how can my business do good and not just be taking up space and be about commercialism and capitalism. And, um, you know, my biggest goal is to to lead by example. Right. And it's not about you don't go into business to make the most amount of profits. No, I mean, that's that's part of it. Like you have to be able to sustain yourself in order to continue being of service. But at what point do you have enough? Yeah. And I think like with the business model, I think this is changing because, you know, if the employees thinking what 
how can I make the most out of profits? Well, one way is to cut the supply, yeah. to cheap out on the supply. Yeah. And then the suppliers are like, well, we can't make any money unless we lower the quality of the supply. And then the employers are going, how can I work the least and make the most amount of money? Yeah. So it starts with the one. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Saying, how can I make the most amount of profits? Yes. And then it spirals to the rest. Right. Instead of it's saying, a chain how, reaction. Yeah. 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 So, but can we flip that and can we be the catalyst for a chain reaction for good? Absolutely. I agree. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So and it's that's, happening right here. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's so cool. Oh my gosh. Well, I think, I think this is where we're going to wrap up. Sounds good. And I just want to thank you so much for being on my podcast. <laughs> Finally. What a fun conversation. And, um, Yeah. That's it. That's all. Yeah. Well, Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> always, always. I mean, it's endless. Yeah. But yeah. Will we, we're going to have to touch base in another year because everything will be different then. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that would be season four Hopefully. of the podcast. So. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all so much for tuning in and ah, be well. Hadabra. Hadabra.